From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon, evening. So glad that you have joined us on a week in a week of great significance for our country, and it is a um, it's a strange mood depending on where you are, and uh, the the developments of this week have uh, have a lot of people asking questions. There seems to be a lot of sadness, a lot of melancholy. Uh, what ought we think about what we're dealing with right now, and uh, also where can we find some hope? And that is always our goal, of course, on Washington Watch to help you uh, keep your eyes on the prize, to keep your eyes on a eternity and and also and make sure that we don't despair because the world is broken but uh, God is not broken and he is very much in charge of the affairs of men and we can have great hope in that even when things are happening that we don't necessarily understand but we do have a great program to kind of break this down for you what happened on Wednesday that's the news of the uh, of the week of the hour um, what happened at the Capitol? Uh, was it an insurrection? Uh, was it something else? Was it something in between? We're going to talk to a couple people who are actually there on Wednesday and kind of give the on-the-ground eyewitness perspective of people who were just there to 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 have a say, to have their voice be heard, to pray for our country, to support the president. Um, what was their perspective? We'll talk about that. We're also uh, going to talk about a great HHS rule for religious freedom that was finalized. It's actually been years in the making. was finalized just this week. It won't get a lot of attention, but it should because it's good for people who care about religious freedom. Then we are going to talk to uh, Pastor Jacob Ray Ohm. You may have heard the story of the... Uh, elder board, the entire elder board of a church in Ontario that has had charges pressed against them because, drum roll please, they were hosting church services. And the uh, the Ontario uh, police have decided that that was not appropriate, and they have actually brought charges not against just a pastor, but the entire elder board of this church. And we are going to talk to Pastor Jacob Rayom about that. And then at the end of the hour, uh, we are going to talk to Dr. Glenn Sunshine, who is a historian who has written a great book on uh, called Slaying Leviathan about the threats to religious freedom we are dealing with right now. And he's going to provide some historical context to what we're going through in America right now as Christians and help us think through all of that. So stay tuned. It's going to be a great way to end your week. And we are going to give you some hope because that's what we do because we love Jesus. So let's talk about Wednesday. Uh, let's talk about the events on the mall in Washington, D.C. We have a couple people uh, who were there who are going to share their perspective and see if their perspective is any different than what you're uh, perhaps seeing on television or uh, on your favorite news site. And to do that, we're going to bring in first Dr. Mark Plaster. Dr. Plaster, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, would you just introduce yourself briefly, um, who you are, where you're from, and how it is that you came to be in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday? Okay. Um, I live uh, slightly south of Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I am an emergency physician and uh, former uh, Navy Reserve doctor with a couple of combat tours in Iraq uh, with the Marine Corps. Um, I ran for Congress in, uh, um, in the last cycle with uh, with uh, President Trump on on the ticket. I have to say that I wasn't 
uh, a supporter of his in the primaries. And uh, really, uh, he had to prove himself to me uh, in the in the four, four years of his uh, presidential cycle, which he did. Um, I thought that he was going to be just a New York liberal uh, parading as a as a conservative, and and uh, the facts on the ground that I saw over the last four years convinced me that uh, he's a true American and a true true patriot. Uh, despite some of the rhetoric that he uh, he seemed to engage in from time to time. And so I, I support him. I support him more, actually, uh, in 2020 than I did as a candidate in 2016. I kind of held my nose and voted for him in 2016, and I uh, campaigned for him uh, this cycle. So when I saw the results of the uh, election, uh, the statistical anomalies, uh, it really did not smell right. I mean, uh, you know, how could a cardboard candidate like uh, you know, Joe Biden end up with more votes? than uh, even Obama. And then and even if you make the statement that uh, it was a massive repudiation of Trump, how could you how could Gallup turn around the you know the next week and say that he was the most admired, admired man in the country, even over Obama? And uh, and Biden only scored like thirteen percent. So sure. it just didn't feel right, you know? Uh, I, I just and I saw a lot of what evidence that was emerging. It, it it looked it looked like a fraudulent election to anybody with a common sense and and an open mind. Well, I know and, a lot of people. Um, I know a lot of people feel the way that you do, and that's why you came to be on the on the mall on Wednesday. Um, yeah. Were you there for the president's speech at the rally? I was. I was. We we, we got down there around seven a.m. and uh, started making our way through the uh, security uh, uh, system, which took several hours. Um, you couldn't take a backpack in. You couldn't take anything into the area where the, where the president was speaking. So um, there were tons of American flags, tons of Trump flags, uh, um, very patriotic. We met people from literally all over the country. We met a woman who had flown in from Hawaii, a couple had driven in from Michigan, uh, Chicago, San Diego. Um, and and the, uh, the the overwhelming sentiment of everybody I met was they were they were kind and courteous. I mean, you, they weren't even bumping into you in the in the crowds. Um, if you stepped on somebody's heel, they or or if they stepped on your heel, they were apologizing. Sure. You know, it was it was that kind of a crowd. Now there were literally I, i've been to several been to a lot of pro-life rallies i've been to a lot of uh, you know like the prayer on the mall that that type of thing that in which uh, i had i could get a feel for the size of the crowd and i i guessed there had to be probably a minimum of four hundred thousand uh people yeah. there obviously i didn't meet them all yeah <laughs> but of course the ones that i met randomly were but- really fine folk what was your what was your sense of the mood? Because um, we you know we we know what we've seen. Did you have any sense that this crowd was agitated? That anything was gonna was gonna come like what we saw later later in the afternoon? No, no, I, I didn't get that feeling at all. And uh, in fact, a couple different times, you know, people tried to break in to lock her up. He mentioned Hillary, and they they tried to break in to lock her up. Nobody was buying it. They weren't shouting it. They weren't picking it up. There was a lot of, uh, you know, USA, USA. Uh, there was, uh, um, I would say, almost a, a little bit of a diminished mood there um, uh, when he finally got up to to uh, uh, speak. There was this feeling of uh, a momentous occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, he started talking about um, uh, he, that he felt that he had won uh, by landslide, and I and I, I think that a lot of people. 
in their gut saw the numbers uh, that Joe Biden uh, was putting up, and they just didn't seem realistic. And they put up, you put up the numbers that, that Donald Trump did, and according to uh, a lot of his, his um, um, rallies and, and the enthusiasm across the country, that was completely believable. And so in your spirit, you just thought, this is fraud. And uh, and the evidence that was coming out would suggest that it was fraud. So people were yeah. there. They were there to support Trump. But really and truly, yeah, you yeah. got the feeling that they were there for uh, to make sure that we had a a true election. Dr. Plaster, I, I really appreciate that perspective. And, and because so many of us, you know, most of us, of course, in the audience were not there. And that, that would include me. Thank you for sharing that, and I know that you weren't uh, actually at the uh, at the Capitol when that happened. And so we are going to bring in no. for our next guest somebody uh, who Sharon Helton, who's actually the director of events at FRC, who took the day off to be part of this event as well because she was curious to see what was going to happen. And she was actually at the Capitol um, when the events that we've seen on the news started happening. Sharon, thanks for taking some time and being with us today. Hi, Joseph. How are you? I am I am well, and I'm glad that you are well, and I'm eager to hear your perspective about uh, what you what took you to the rally on Wednesday to, to down to the mall and uh, what you saw. Well, what took me to the rally was I love America, of course, and a friend and I had just decided we wanted to go a couple of days before um, just to primarily just to say that we we love our country. We knew it was a historic event, and we just we wanted to be there, and we wanted to support our president. And so, and and what did you what did you perceive um, as was the mood of the crowd when when you got there and what you what you saw throughout the day? Okay, well, we we actually stayed downtown uh, at the Hyatt Regency on Capitol Hill, so we walked fifteen blocks from the Hyatt to the Ellipse. And so there was a lot of time to observe people. There was a lot of time to meet people. And, and for those I who don't observed, know, Washington, uh, let me, Sharon, let me break in. For those who don't know Washington D.C. well, uh, the ellipse is in front of the uh, the White House, and it is not close necessarily to the Capitol. And so she walked a long way through town, and then they walked back the other way toward the Capitol. But keep going, Sharon. Absolutely, yes. So what I observed were a lot of uh, everyone, patriotic flag-waving, freedom-loving people that were just there – were, there were African-Americans, there were whites, there were Hispanics, there were Asians. There were a lot of Asians handing out in the communi- Chinese Communist Party that we noticed. Uh, they were handing out brochures about that. Just a very patriotic, upbeat crowd. Um, lots of USA chants, as um, your, your former guest said. Yeah. And and as I was walking, I did ask a couple of people because I'm curious, why are people there? I knew why I was there, but I wanted to know why other people were there. And the concern over the election and the irregularities, obviously, and that our fundamental freedoms were being usurped and um, and obviously to support the president. Sharon, at what point? The election integrity. At what point Mm -hmm. did you realize that that? unusual things were happening well that was once i got to the capitol uh mm-hmm. because i can tell you down at the ellipse 
And there, there were easily, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, and I got that from the guy who actually has been to 125 rallies that mm-hmm. has the truck that holds the Jumbotron. And he told me, he said, I would estimate at least 500,000 people here. And so the bottom line, down at the Ellipse, it was packed. It was, it was, you know, people just all over the place. And the mood was, again, upbeat. Uh, people, were, people were friendly. They were not being um, – they were being very gracious to one another. So when we started walking after the president spoke, and I would say I had no idea that he, in my mind, had not said anything that was inciting any kind of violence. So I didn't even know that until later that, you know, that afternoon. But when we started walking to the Capitol, and it was the same thing, very patriotic. When we got to the Capitol. Um, Keep going, finish, just, but we are running out of time. Yeah, we, um, when we got to the Capitol, the main thing that I noticed, the big, big thing that I noticed was there were, I did not see Capitol Police. And because we do events at the Capitol, I was surprised not to see Capitol Police anywhere around. Sharon, and I know they're uniformed. Yeah, I, I do have to cut you off because we're, we're at a break here. And, and I'm, I'm sorry that we're running out of time because I would love to get the rest of your story. But the point is that this did come out of nowhere. And the vast majority of people who were there uh, were very well behaved and were, were doing exactly what they should have been doing. And, and now, as they say, we know the rest of the story. Um, but uh, we're going to keep tracking this story for you. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I-, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll... It was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. 
Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home here sitting in for Tony Perkins as we break down the events of this most significant week. Uh, we've already, it seems like we've already had 2020 again here in 2021, doesn't it? Uh, but we are going to bring you some good news because we all need that. And here to do that with us is the lovely and gracious Mary Beth Waddle. She's an attorney. She's the senior legislative assistant at Family Research Council. Mary Beth, thanks for taking some time to be with us. Thank you, Joseph. Appreciate that introduction. <laughs> well, we appreciate you so much, and we appreciate you today because you're going to bring us some good news. Tell us uh, what happened at HHS uh, that we can be excited about this week. Yes, this is absolutely wonderful news. So HHS finalized a rule today that undoes one of the terrible things from the previous administration where any grantee of any HHS grant would be required to accept sexual orientation and gender identity idolatry or ideology if they were going to be able to get a grant. It's and kind of idolatry as well, been... <laughs> but it's also ideology. Yes, but that um, that has now been reversed, which is great news because we've seen this regulation uh, just really used to to harm even innocent children. Give us an example of one of these grantees. How how would this apply in the real world for those of us who aren't frequently applying for federal grants? What kind of organizations, what kind of entities are we talking about that this would apply to? One of the entities that you're talking about, as I was just mentioning with the most needy children out there, is faith-based adoption and foster care agencies in Massachusetts, Illinois, Michigan, San Francisco, D.C., Philadelphia, even my own home state of South Carolina. All of these places have attempted to get rid of or strong-arm faith-based adoption providers because of their faith and their religious beliefs. And we need all hands on deck when it comes to helping these needy children. Um, in my home state of South Carolina, Miracle Hill Ministries, they were directly threatened, um, you know, with potentially losing all of their, their funding and their ability to, to work with the government in this space. Um, but fortunately, you know, T Senator Tim Scott and some others and some of the 
delegation over in the, the House, they stood up and HHS was able to grant a waiver uh, while they were in the process of finalizing this rule that they just did. Do you have a sense for how much money, how many grants this applies to? Well, this would apply to any and all grants um, because the the rule that was put in by uh, the previous administration that was changed applied to any and all grants. So any money, any grantee, if they were faith-based, if they had a religious conviction to use this grant money to help their communities, they either had to be willing to capitulate on that or forfeit it altogether if they wanted to get money. All HHS money was tied to uh, an acceptance of sexual orientation and gender identity, and that is now – this rule undoes that. And, and just to provide some context for HHS, as I, I talked to somebody who works in the agency recently um, in, under the current administration, who, who pointed out that if HHS were its own country, it would have just the budget of HHS. It would be like the fifth or sixth largest uh, GDP of in, in the world. It is a massive. It, it's just an agency within the U.S. government, but it is really big, and we're not talking uh, small amounts of money that this would apply to. Now, absolutely not at all. I think a quarter or something around there of our economy is healthcare. Right, and it, and it covers. Yeah, it, it, so it's a big agency. Just so people understand what this applies to. Now, you you mentioned that this rule has reversed a rule from the previous administration. Can you tell us why that rule was put into place in the first place? Uh, the, just the, the ideology. The, the previous administration um, repeatedly tried to, to force its agenda, its ideology, um, on those of faith and, you know, had multiple, multiple instances of where um, they just – showed a lack of uh, wanting to under- have a lacking of understanding of the First Amendment and what it really means to have religious freedom and religious liberty. And then ultimately, as I mentioned, how it's not just about religious liberty, how that affects the the most needy in our communities where a lot of this help money is going and being used. Right. And, and just... I think it's important for people to kind of understand the context of this and why this is so important because it feels it feels regulatory and it feels kind of legal. But what this meant is for you know adoption agencies, churches, social service providers, people who are just trying to serve their community, that the government was taking a position that in, in, unless you embrace a certain value system and really what is a, what is functionally in every practical way a religion, its own set of ideas, which of course in America you're free to have. Have these beliefs, but the the bedrock principle of religious freedom that America has embraced in its First Amendment is the idea that the government is not going to punish you because of your beliefs. But what this rule did was specifically say, and unless you affirm a certain view of gender, unless you affirm a certain view of sexuality, you and your religious organization or your nonprofit organization are disqualified, or even your for-profit organization, they could get grants in, in some cases, you are disqualified unless you are willing to abide by a certain set of values that 
conflict with the majority of of religious instructions on the planet. So I, I think it's important th- th- to understand where this came from and why it is a threat. Now, Mary Beth, we know that we're about to see an administration change. If this was a rule change from the previous administration, what do we project moving forward to the uh, Biden administration? Oh, they'll try to go back to the way it was under the Obama and Biden administration. They'll uh, do what they can to undo this and put it back to the way it was. Yet another reminder of why elections matter. Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining us, for bringing this. And thank you for your work on this as well, because I know it is significant. And thank you for joining us today. And folks, on the other side, stay with us because we are going to talk to Pastor Jacob Rayom from Trinity Bible Chapel in Ontario, Canada. And he's going to tell us about the charges that have been brought against his church for simply holding church services. You don't want to miss it. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today as we discuss the news of the week and what should be, in some places, the news of the year, a story that has already happened. You may already know about it, but you may not. In Ontario, Canada, we have an entire elder board who has had charges pressed against them because they had the audacity 
to hold church services. No, this is not North Korea, friends. This is our friendly neighbors to the north in Canada. And here to discuss us with it, Pastor Jacob Rayom. Pastor Rayom, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. My pleasure, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, we are glad to have you, though we are concerned about the story. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit, give us a quick bio about who you are. Um, I assure, I'm sure you didn't uh, get into ministry looking for trouble like this, but tell us um, where you came from and how you came to be talking about this today. Right, well, when I got into ministry, I figured I'd eventually get into trouble, but I didn't know it would be over um, violating health protocols. I figured it would be... Well, you are in very good company by getting in trouble, and I think you probably know Yeah, that. yeah, I understand that. <laughs> and, I mean, I figured we'd end up getting in trouble for some type of hate speech violation eventually, but and I'd end up um, on the wrong side of the law for that. But, no, we're on the – I've been the pastor here for 11 years, and we went through the first lockdown um, in Ontario back in the spring. It ended uh, second Sunday in June. Um and I, I was part of a team that was advocating for our premier of the province to get the ch- to release the churches from this, um, I guess, lockdown. And he finally listened to us after some threats of lawsuits and whatnot. So we get through the summertime, and they're all talking about second lockdown around Christmas. And so we start leading the church towards the direction of what we're going to do if there is a second lockdown. And um, we decided that uh, we would remain open. And so we had the audacity to uh, keep our church, to open our church the first Sunday in January. Um, I'm sorry, the last Sunday in December and then the first Sunday in January. So we've now had uh, two Sundays whereby we've been open as a church uh, against the the Orwellian legislation that's come from our premier that's called the Reopen Ontario Act that's being used to close everything down again. So, oh, go ahead. So I'm uh, our our elder board and our church is now if we if we have to pay all the maximum of uh, what we've been charged, we will have to pay uh, I think it's eleven point four million dollars and each do two years in jail. Eleven that that's the maximum penalty for violence. That's the maximum penalty okay. is eleven point four million dollars. So ten million would go to the church and the remainder like the actual church corporation, and the remainder would go uh, out of pocket gotcha. from each elder, and each elder would be liable because he's liable up to two years in jail, I believe. Incredible. At what point did you learn that you were in legal trouble? Well, I knew we'd be in legal trouble when we uh, decided to open the church because three police or two police officers visited me. Um, before we opened it, I sent a I sent a letter to the chief of police about mm-hmm. four days before we opened and informed him that we would be doing so because, and we asked him to attend our service. Um, we invited him because he attended the Black Lives Matter protest in downtown uh, of our city, where there was upwards of twelve to twenty thousand people who were in violation of the Ontario lockdown of five person gatherings outdoor maximum at that time. Mm-hmm. The chief of police was supportive of that vocally. There was no charges laid, to my knowledge, and so I asked him to come and support our church as we gathered to honor the persecuted church around the world. Um, within a few hours, the next day, I had uh, two of his uh, officers came and visited me and informed me that we'd be in violation of the law. So, from your perspective, they are not enforcing the law equitably? 
No, is that fair to say? An arbitrary, I believe it's an arbitrary application of the law. I mean, if you can have a twelve to 20,000 gathering downtown uh, Kitchener that's not enforced, um, when you're only allowed to have a five-person gathering, and then we gather at church on Sunday, and now that is enforced, and our, or we're looking at potentially two years um, in the clink for each elder, we're, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell me what, what was it that motivated you to do to make this decision, despite what the the law has said? Well, the, the definition of a church is it's a gathering, so it's an ecclesia. It's Greek word means to gather together, and so a church that does not gather is not a church. And the uh, example of our Lord Jesus is, um, I mean, Christ came to us not in uh, pixelated images on a computer screen. He came in mm-hmm. the flesh. And uh, we are to live and eat and breathe with one another and uh, be in each other's presence. And this is a good gift of God. And um, we started to analyze the data of the COVID-19 pandemic and realized that the actions of our government are completely disproportionate to uh, what's actually going on. Now that... Now we got one minute left, so this will be the final question for you. But now that you're in this situation, getting some news coverage, what are you telling your church? What is your position? How are you talking and thinking about this now? Well, the people need to keep their eyes fixed on the Lord. I mean, the last thing we need them to do is keep their eyes on the waves and then start to panic. So we keep our eyes on our Savior. He's a good Savior, and uh, He can end this storm with one little word. Amen. Pastor Rayom, thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you for your courage. May it be an example to many. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Thank you so much for for what you're doing, and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Take care now. Bye. On the other side, we're going to talk to Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Put all of this in a little perspective historically. He's a church historian. I think you'll be encouraged. You'll learn some things as well. How unusual is what we're living through right now? On the other side, Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Be right back. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, Because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. 
there is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, ending the week with you in a great way as we, uh, we're going to bring in Dr. Glenn Sunshine. You needed a little sunshine in your life. We're going to give you a little sunshine in your life. And not only will he bring you sunshine, he's going to bring you some important historical perspectives because he is a historian, a church historian, and he can tell us some things about this moment uh, and put some context into this that, uh, that we may not have based on our particular educational experience. Dr. Sunshine, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Well, it is a delight to have you, and I also want people to know that this, the conversation that we're about to have um, it will happen in greater length in your new book, Slaying the Leviathan, which talks about how we are to respond to the threats to the liberty that we are currently facing in America. But you're, you're a historian. You have a different perspective than, than some of us. Just tell us your high-level kind of impressions. What are we to think? How are you thinking about the events of this week? Well, I think that we really need to begin, actually, with the Scriptures. You know, Jesus tells us right at the start that we're to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, which means that Caesar has some legitimate claims on us, but he doesn't have the ultimate claim. That that goes to God himself. Uh, Or we could go to Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, where they tell them we need to obey God rather than man. So that really lays the foundation for Christian thinking about about resistance. What we saw in Washington wasn't that. You know, the fact of the matter is that that there is no justification for the kind of violence that we saw in Washington uh, within the Christian tradition, even though there is a place for resistance to government. And and I think yeah I think the the debate right now that I'm that I'm hearing and seeing online really is 
necessary is kind of is a factual dispute about basically who started this and, and there are some on the right who are saying well this was Antifa and then a couple a couple people who were lack self control followed them I don't know that that's necessarily the debate that you and I want to solve right now um, but how 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 ought we think about that balance understanding that Caesar does have some claim on us and there are things that God says you have to submit to even when you don't like it and and those uh, Paul gave us those instructions when Nero was in charge of Rome, who certainly wasn't the most righteous ruler that the earth has ever seen. So it's not only submit to good government. Where is that line between uh, what is rightful submission to the authorities and then uh, then throwing off an authority when, when that authority is trying to take uh, what belongs to God? Well, I think that... It- that is a very, very long discussion, um, and there are a whole lot of different issues involved in it. You know, at the simplest level, when government tells us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, that's the obvious place where you have to draw the line. Mm-hmm. You know, if government tells us that, you know, like is happening in China right now, that we have to rewrite the scriptures. Uh, to suit the Chinese Communist Party, that we need to uh, basically treat the president as God. You know, those are kinds of things that we have to just simply say no to. But it gets much more complicated when you start asking questions about uh, what is it that government has legitimate authority over. And within the Christian tradition, there have been a lot of answers to that question. But What it comes down to ultimately is what is it that God endowed humanity with prior to the establishment of human government? You know, when you go back to Genesis, when you look at at, uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what rights did they have? Those rights predate human government, and therefore human government has no ultimate authority over them. And those traditionally have been understood in in a variety of terms, but they were codified probably best by uh, John Locke with his ideas of uh, life, liberty, and property. Uh, Jefferson modified that to pursuit of happiness, but that's, again, another longer discussion of what he meant by that. Sure, and, and and of course, the, the, the references that you've just made are are evidence that this discussion is not new and it is not easily solved, like many many conversations we have within the church. When you see what we're going, what we're dealing with, with what happened on the mall on Wednesday, the larger conver- the longer conversation we've been having about COVID. We just talked to a pastor uh, from Canada who is facing uh, charges from the government of Ontario because they are simply holding church services in a way that they say is uh, is against the law. Can we put this moment in some kind of context? Is there something that you think of that is similar to this that we can draw from? There, uh, you know, it's been said that history repeats itself. Actually, I don't believe that's true. It's more that historians repeat each other. Um, <laughs> we we don't really have an exact parallel to this. Um, however, the situation in Canada um, reminds me very much of situations that have come up in, for example, the context of the French Revolution uh, and other places where there were uh, bans on on worship. Um, And there were all kinds of good reasons and good excuses that people had for doing that. But ultimately, the question becomes, does God command worship? And if he does, then no human authority has the right to prohibit that. 
what would you say to the idea that, well, worship can be done in all sorts of ways, and you can worship in your living room, you can worship in your car, you can worship in your office. So the government telling you not to do this is not necessarily a, a restriction on your freedom to worship. Well, actually it is. By any definition, it is a restriction. Um, further, when you take a look at passages like um, Hebrews 12, I think it's Hebrews 12, no, it's Hebrews 6, excuse me, where it says, do not forsake your assembling together, right. as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. Um, we need to be in an environment in which we can do that, and that can only happen when we gather together. It's explicitly commanded there to gather together. And further, it is extraordinarily difficult to truly encourage someone over Zoom. Well, that that's a fair point, and that's a that's a point that in the last segment that the the pastor from Canada, Pastor Rayom, made. He said uh, he doesn't think the assembling of yourselves together that we are not supposed to forsake is a a, a pixelated version of yourselves over over uh, over Zoom. And I think that's a really good point. And honestly, I think the experience that so many of us are having right now. As we are denied the fellowship that we've been used to and, and simply the socialization that, I've, that humans are created to need, I think the, the loss that so many of us are feeling are evidence of the fact that God didn't just say that because, you know, he needed a way to, you know, facilitate some kind of pyramid scheme. We are made for community and we are made to be together. And when that, when that experience is denied to us, we are experiencing a loss, aren't we? Oh, yes, and the fact of the matter is that depending, well, it's not even depending on how you're looking at it, more people are dying because of the shutdowns than are dying because of COVID. Yes, when you, I think when you take the evidence the for that picture, is that's Yeah, I mean, you know, even the UN is saying it's going to be over 100 million people are going to starve to death because of this. That's many, many more than, than are going to die of COVID. And that doesn't include things like the suicides, um, the the um, uh, deaths by opioid uh, abuse, things like that, that are, are skyrocketing as a result of, of the government action. I think that, that if you're actually going to pay attention to this, even just from the limited perspective of a public health crisis, uh, you have to take into account all aspects of it, not just one disease that yeah, it's a 98% survival rate. If a pastor came to you and sought some advice and said, hey, I understand, you know, all, all the data that you've just referenced and just kind of their own experience of, you know, we wanted to we wanted to help early on and nobody wants to kill the people in their church, right? So we we cooperated. We're now at the point where we feel like, you know, we, we have to get people back together again, but let's say they're in Canada and the law still says you shouldn't. What is your advice to them? How should the church be thinking about it now? Um, I think that we need to stop thinking of the church in terms of necessarily large institutional structures. I would encourage pastors uh, who may be facing the kinds of restrictions that you see in Canada to uh, encourage people to get together in homes. Mm -hmm. uh, go back to a house church model, a cell church model, something like that, um, that keep the house churches connected to the campus church, the main church, 
um, so that when restrictions are lifted, they can come back together, but encourage people to collect for worship in homes. It's going to be much, much more difficult to police that. Correct. And so so that is a way to perhaps skirt around that issue is, okay, let's take the ecclesia where we've been in this building, but let's just disperse it. Let's make sure we're gathering, doing it at homes. It's harder for the government to monitor. But with on this on the on the the larger question of should the government be able to tell the church you cannot gather and how should our response be in your in your judgment does that fall on the side of uh, the submission to the proper authority of government that we just have to comply with because they're the uh, the rulers that God has given us or does that fall in the line of um, they are trying to interfere with things that that are directly in conflict with what God has told us. Uh, I would say it's the latter. They are usurping authority that belongs to God. Uh, it is one thing if a church, if the church leadership says we don't believe it's safe to worship. You know, mm-hmm. we don't believe it's safe for us to gather together for the duration of this emergency. Here's what you know. Here's how we're going to uh, deal with the pastoral needs that are going to arise within the congregation. It's one thing if the church decides that it's a whole different thing when the government steps in and does that, because once the government does that, it says that we are over the church. Right. And I, that, that to me, the church. And, yeah, that to me is the yeah. big point is, is remembering who do we serve. And when, when the government tells us to do something that is in conflict with what God has told us to do, God wins every time. And for us, it's just a matter of, do we have the courage to do that? Cause as the, as the church in, in Canada is saying, and, and many others throughout the country have seen, there is a cost to doing so, isn't there? Yes. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, John, all of them told us that we're going to be facing trouble. The world is going to hate us. We're going to face opposition. Everyone who wants to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They don't allow for any exceptions to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. We should expect opposition. We may not like it. We may not want it. We shouldn't go courting it. But we should stay faithful and just simply expect that as we do that, we're going to draw fire. That's right. And understand that ultimately, as Ephesians 6 reminds us, that we are fighting a spiritual battle that has has a natural, worldly um, battlefields. But this is ultimately a spiritual war. And though... Um, the the government action that is keeping the church from gathering, the people who are doing that aren't necessarily maliciously saying, hey, I don't want a church to gather and I'm going to get in the way. But we have to understand from a spiritual perspective where this is coming from, and God doesn't necessarily give us exemptions um, when the government tells you not to. Uh, but I haven't... I have another question for you. I want to change the conversation in our last few minutes here is to the events of Wednesday, the uh, outburst at the Capitol, those who went, kind of went stampeding through the Capitol, recognizing it was a tiny fraction of the number of people who were there. That happened. And I've seen in online chatter and things, people kind of comparing this. And I know that many people see it this way. Because, well, this is basically like the revolution. We have to, we have to overthrow the tyrants. Um, how, how do you think through that? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily trying to compare the fact set, but how would, should we think about the American Revolution? Because we're all thankful for it, but the reality was um, that was violence against a government that they determined to be oppressive, and we have been the beneficiaries of that um, ever since. Um, was the American Revolution um, unbiblical? 
Well, again, this this it, it, it's difficult to justify the American Revolution on the grounds of the simple way most Christians approach Scripture. Uh, you can't really look at it and find a verse to support it. Um, you might be able to look at the book of Judges, but even that is a bit of a strain. Um, however, when you understand that biblical thinking involves more than just proof texting, more than just identifying a passage to justify what you're doing, when you think about it in terms of what are the implications of what Scripture says for human rights, for the responsibilities of government to citizens and citizens to government. When you look at it from that broader perspective, which is what I really try to unpack in part in my book, which is way too short to do justice to the whole topic, frankly, um, you can make a very good case that even though there is no proof text for the American Revolution, the British government had turned tyrannical and therefore had violated its covenant with the people. And under those circumstances, when the government violates its covenant, when it violates its legitimate authority and oversteps its bounds by trampling the rights of the citizens, then I think you can make a good case that Locke is right, that we have the right, and Locke would actually go further and say the duty, at least some Locke and some of his supporters would go that far, the duty to replace that government because it is it has lost legitimacy by becoming tyrannical, by taking away the fundamental rights that God has granted to people. Dr. Sunshine, thank you so much. These are deep, complex issues, and and we can't, of course, finalize this debate and settle this debate today, but... I, Thank you for taking your time to uh, be with us today and help us think a little more clearly uh, through what it is that we're living through. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And, and folks, go get his book, Slaying the Leviathan. You do want to read that. You are going to enjoy that um, anywhere books are sold. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 